Well, I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to speak tonight, and I hope um, I can share some of my excitement with you. I, I have a chance to uh, open up to Ez, Esther. Sorry, I almost said Ezra. That was this morning. Esther, uh, once again, and, and it's one of my favorite books. And every time I read it, every time I get a chance to study it, it just gets more and more intriguing to me. So I don't have any, a handout tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, great. That's extra credit. If not, don't worry. We have backups. So. That's all right. I'd encourage you to, to get those out, though, and turn to the book of Esther, because that's where we'll be. And I trust this is encouraging to you, as it has been to me. Really, I'm going to be doing an extended series on this. Um, as I have opportunity to preach, um, I'll just keep going through it. And I think the, we've only done this once so far. My Esther 1 sermon was back in the beginning of Jude, and I think that was, uh, June, I almost said, Jude, wow, boy, getting my books and my dates confused, um, back in June, and I think that was the night that my insides wanted to be on my outsides, and, uh, and then the next day I was in the hospital, so I wasn't feeling the best then, I hope it's not something that keeps coming up every time I open up to Esther, we will pray not, okay, feeling fine, feeling fine, um, but we're going to continue on, and I know that makes it difficult when you do an extended series like that, when we only touched on it like, you know, a month ago, and now we're coming again, and then we'll forget about it a while until the next month, and I just hope you can stay with me. We'll try and review a little bit and get back into it, okay? I just love the, the exilic books, uh, specifically the historical ones that all go together, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. They're just so interesting to me. I could study them all day long. I like thinking about what was going on in, in their minds as they were removed from their homeland and then in some cases allowed to return and wondering if God's promises still applied to them. All those things going on. I love it. Esther is a particularly fascinating hero to me. And so we get to finally meet her today as we go into Esther chapter two. If you remember anything from uh, a few weeks ago when I spoke last, and I know it's hard to remember what you ate for breakfast and it applies to me, too. But if you remember anything about my message, uh, you would remember that we talked about King Xerxes, right? He was the individual we met first in the book. And in chapter one, he was married to this woman named Queen Vashti, who he kind of got rid of because he was having a party and asked her to come and she didn't come to him. And he got mad and asked his officials what he should do. And they said, get rid of her. And that was basically it. Now, whether that was his fault or hers, whether she should have come or he was being unreasonable, whether he was asking for her to come in some sort of suggestive way, we don't know. But we do know he ultimately judged wrongly in the end. His sentence was a little bit more harsh than the crime. And he decided, oh, that was enough to get rid of her entirely, because if he didn't, well, then there'd be utter chaos. Every woman in the country would be rebelling against her husband and so forth. Outrageous claims, but, but that's what he did. And, and the point that we said of all of that was not to make judgment calls on what is right and wrong and going on. It's just to set up the story as to how Esther came to be in the place that she was. It's setting the story. It's the prologue. So we're not supposed to get hung up too much on that, except to see God's hand at work as to how Esther would come to be queen. So it doesn't matter if this was a wicked act on the king or not, uh, on the king's part or not. It shows us how Esther came to power. And that's what we have as we look at chapter two. So I'm going to read chapter two, verses one through 18. And I ask you to follow along with me just so we can get this text before we start to explain it. OK, chapter two, verse one. 
Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, I'm reading from the NIV, by the way, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king and let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. And let they be placed in the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let beauty treatments be given to them. And then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew in the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, 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 however you say that, Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she, excuse me, she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter. And he had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before the girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign. And now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. And so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Okay, so that's the text that's before us tonight, how Esther came to power. So let's explain this. Let's understand it a little bit. Okay, before we can properly apply anything, we need to understand it in its right context. So let's set the the stage. Um, Where is this taking place? When is this taking place? Well, 
like so many other passages of Scripture, it's not easy to tell the passage of time from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Actually, there are four years that pass between when we last led off in chapter 1 to verse 1 of chapter 2. This is four years later. And we know this because the text tells us. It says that the celebration of the king that we talked about in chapter 1 was held in his third year of reign. So that was chapter 1, verse 3, if you look back to that verse. It says, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Okay. Then if we look to chapter 2, we see that Esther is not brought before the king until the seventh year of his reign. That was in verse 16, toward the end of the passage we just read. So it says she was taken in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Okay. So the reason, you might ask, why did it take so long for him to find a queen? The reason for him taking this long is because we learn from history that he was out fighting a war. And in fact, that ties very much uh, with what we talked about back in chapter 1 where we said the king was giving this grand celebration for all of his subjects in his kingdom. And he was allowing uh, wine to be given out freely at no charge to his subjects. Anybody could drink as much as they wanted. There was food. There was uh, couches made of gold. There were uh, goblets made of gold. Anything you could think of. He was showing off his kingdom. Why? Because he wanted to prove to everybody how great he was. And he wanted to rally some support for this military campaign he was going to go on. So when we see that four years pass between then and now, it's because he actually goes on that military expedition. And we learn from other sources in history it was against Greece. And unfortunately for him, we learn from other sources that it failed terribly. So even though he tried his best to get support, it just all came crashing down. He didn't win any of the battles. He was defeated twice and he had to come back as a defeated general, a, gen- a defeated leader of his country, okay, uh, with, with his tail between his legs, so to speak. Uh, he, he didn't accomplish anything that he was hoping to. And so he returns defeated, but he turns his attention to other matters. After all of this happens, he's left thinking, now what? And he remembers, oh, yeah, that's right. Four years ago, I got rid of my queen. And, and some commentators have suggested that maybe the king was starting to have second thoughts about what he did. It's hard to, to say when you just read the, the, the text, if that's really the case. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But in any case, he, he remembered her and, and he was left with a problem. I don't have a queen now. What are we going to do? And so uh, his royal officials uh, gave him a suggestion. They said, uh, why don't we have this search? Why don't we provide a new uh, queen for you? And let's search throughout the kingdom and find all the young eligible maidens, all the young virgins that are beautiful, and bring them before you, and, uh, and, and you pick the one you like the best. And the king, of course, he's the king, and he's a pagan king. Sounds good to me. Let's do that. Okay? So, uh, going according to their suggestion, that's what happens. And the Jewish historian Josephus says that there were over 400 women that were brought to the capital for this purpose. Okay, our text doesn't say that. We can't totally trust what Josephus says. We don't know. But if he is being accurate or anywhere close, okay, that's a lot of women being brought to his palace. And it's not anything that we, we don't gather that this is voluntary on their part. It seems that all of the action is coming from the king's command. Okay, gather these women, bring them here. Not that we want you to go out and see, see who wants to come. Okay, these women it seems we're being taken from their families to come and try out, as it were, uh, for the king's love. Okay? Not a very good deal in some respects. Sure, they're potentially entering into a place where they'll have lots of money. They'll be in a royal setting. But we're only talking about one out of 400. 
So their chances weren't very good. But you do learn something about the king's character on top of what we learned from chapter one and that he's he's a pretty uh, sleazy guy. OK, he's just out for his own pleasure. He wants to just see all the beautiful women and he wants to um, have this contest. OK, and we can learn some other things about him through other historians as well. Okay? It's kind of helpful to bring in all these other details that we find out through history. Another guy, not Josephus, but Herodotus is his name. Uh, he says in one of his history books that uh, this King Xerxes um, kind of fooled around with some of his officials wives as well years later. Okay, so we can tell what kind of person this this man was. And ultimately, it's believed that that's what helped to lead to his assassination just 14 years later from these events. Okay, so he didn't live a very long life. He didn't have a very long reign. And it's all because of the kind of life he lived. He went out searching for all these young women that could just please him. He didn't care about removing them from their homes. He uh, slept with other people's wives. Uh, he didn't care about any of that. He had the power. He did what he wanted. Okay. And that you get a sense of what kind of person this man was. We already said last time we were together that uh, he was an angry person. He could be angry at any moment, uh, just like he got angry at his former queen, uh, just because she wouldn't appear before him as part of his party. So he threw her out. Now, we know from another historian, and I told you this last time, uh, that he had men killed because they didn't build a bridge for him in the timeline that he told them to. Okay, so this is the kind of scenario Esther is going to be entering into. Okay, not a very safe one, not a very comforting scenario and not a very godly man by any stretch of the imagination as we think of her potentially coming to, to, to be with this this king. OK, so that's the search that's made. That's what happened. And um, and Esther's thrown into this. Now, as I was studying this particular passage of how Esther came to meet King Xerxes and the process she had to go through, I, I just kept coming back to the same illustration in my mind. Maybe you can help me out with this one. Um, have any of you ever seen the TV show The Bachelor? Okay, raise your hand if you've heard of that show or seen it on TV before. Okay, some of you. All right, maybe you've just maybe you watched an episode before. I'm sorry to say I have. Okay, I wish I could get those hours back in my life, but I can't. Okay, um, maybe you've watched full episodes. Maybe you've just seen it and flipping through channels. It's been on since I think 2002, so it's been around for a while. But the more I studied this. Um, on one hand, I, I was thinking, this is outrageous. How could you have a king just pull all these women and have this contest compete for his love? And it's essentially a beauty contest. And you can just kind of imagine the things that went on. Thinking this is a primitive time. You know, we can't imagine that. And then I look and turn on my television. It's no different today. OK, two and a half thousand years removed from this event. Um, I just was struck by the similarities. If you're not familiar with the show, let me just kind of give you the synopsis. OK, you have one guy very much like King Xerxes was this one guy. And you have 25 women come on the show to compete for this one man's love. These women don't know very much about this man from the start, okay? except that he's nice looking. He's usually a handsome guy that they get on the show. Usually he's rich to some degree. I, I went back and the Internet's useful for all kinds of worthless information. OK, so somebody had posted a list of all the past uh, bachelors and, and what their occupation was. And did they say yes? And did they say no to this woman? What happened? Did they break up? Did they get married? Whatever. None of them stayed together, by the way, in like 15 years of this show or not 15, but since 2002. Um, yeah, 11 years. Just, not 11, nine. My math. <laughs> I was going to be a math teacher. Did you did you know that? Um, that's why I'm not. OK, nine years. 
basic stuff. Um, so anyway, in all these years of the show being on, none of them stay together. And when you look back through the list, uh, you know, a lot of these people were football players or they're executives or they're heads of banks or owners of companies. Um, those are the kind of people they have on the show. And you can see why, because then it's kind of, I mean, what else do you know about this guy? He's good looking and he's, and he has money. Okay. Um, not very unlike, uh, the situation we read about here two and a half thousand years ago. Okay. What, what do these women know about King Xerxes? Uh, nothing except that he's rich and he's powerful. Okay. And I don't even know if he was good looking. Okay. Maybe he was the ugliest guy on the face of the planet. We don't know. Okay. But he had the power and that's all that mattered. Um, but on this show, you have these 25 women competing for this, the love of this man. And every week uh, he eliminates more and more of them. He gives roses to the ones that he likes and the rest go home and sob and cry and all that. And they're devastated like this is the worst thing to happen to them. They win this, the affection of this man that they don't know. But uh, so, so then they continue to compete and, and people go to extremes. Extreme. I mean, they don't obviously they don't get into all the details in the show, but you can kind of tell where it's heading. I mean. Girls, uh, you know, wear scantily clad things and they, they, you know, it just gets really sleazy. And, th- you know, all these girls are trying to make out with this guy as much as they can to win his effect to prove they're the better kisser, whatever. It, it's, it's insane. And uh, and that's exactly what Xerxes was doing to these women so many years ago. Now, you might say, um, well, that's much worse back then because these women were being drugged out of their homes in ancient Persia and having to compete whether they wanted to or not. Okay. And, and I will give you that, that, that is certainly worse. Okay. But what's also striking to me is that we are now removed from that situation and women would volunteer themselves to be in a position that um, women have worked so hard over so many thousands of years to free themselves from, okay. To, to subject themselves to such degradation in that way, to be tried on for size, like Xerxes tried out these women. Okay. Um, so it's, it's sad, but we have a very similar analogy in our day as well. And so there's this contest. Uh, and Xerxes had all these women come to him, just like all these women today come on this TV show to compete for the love of this one man. And, and uh, basically, it tells us in the text that uh, they would get themselves all beautified. Okay, I don't know what the word is. They do all these beauty treatments for a year. And after that time was over, they would go to the king's chambers at night and they would leave in the morning. Okay, the Bible doesn't have to go any further than that for us to get the, the gist. Okay, of what's going on there. Okay, and again, these women are there, um, probably not of their own will. It's just what the king has ordered of them, and this is the process they're subjected to. And so the king tries out each of these women uh, one after the other until he finds one he likes the best. And then it says, after that was over, they go to be with the concubines. Um, and that means they're going to be subjected to a lesser status the rest of their life. Sure, they'll be in luxury. They'll, ha- they'll be provided for. But it says in this passage that we read that they won't see the king at all again unless he calls them by name. And, uh, and they won't be allowed to marry, probably not allowed to ever see their family again, certainly not allowed to return to their family. And, and, and that's what happens, all because the king wanted to have a, a contest okay, to select his wife. Um, and, and Esther is going to have to be a part of that. Esther um, is then described for us. Okay, so first we get an introduction to Xerxes, what he's going to do, this process that describes this for us, and then it takes a break. The author takes a break from describing this to go to Esther and to introduce her to us and this man named Mordecai. So what do we learn about that? Look down at verses 5 
through 7. And we learn a bit about um, our hero, our two heroes, you could say, of the story. Um, It says that while all this was taking place, Esther was actually under the care of Mordecai. And who was Mordecai? It says it was her cousin. And I get that confused sometimes. I I wonder if he's an uncle or something. No, it says cousin here. So there's no mistaking that. Um, And these verses are important because um, this is where we get the bulk of our information, at least in the beginning, about what kind of person she is, what kind of person he is, their background, all that. What does it say? Well, it says he's from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Jair, Shimi and Kish, who was originally carried off into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, be careful how you read that verse, by the way, as you're reading through it. It might almost seem like it's saying that uh, Mordecai was carried off um, into exile. But that, that's not possible. Okay, if you do the math, um, which okay, I, I thought about it for a while. I know I'm not good at math tonight, but I, I thought about it for a while. Uh, Mordecai would have had to be 120 years old okay, if, if that were describing him. And that would have made Esther about 70 years old. I don't think Esther participated in a beauty contest when she was 70. Okay, I think she was uh, early, younger than that. Okay, so really it's referring to his great-grandfather, Kish, not him. You just have to be careful how you're referring to that. So Mordecai wasn't carried off into exile. His great-grandfather was. But the reason for this genealogy being listed at all is to explain how they got there. So why are two Jews living in Susa? Why aren't they in their homeland? Because they were carried off into exile many, many years ago. And that's why they're there. So it describes Mordecai. And then it says he had this cousin whose original name was Hadassah. Okay, that's a little you want to win in Bible trivia. There you go. Write that down. What's Esther's real name? Okay, Hadassah. We don't know her by that. We know her by her Persian name. But it seemed to be the custom uh, for exiled Jews to give a Hebrew name and then a, a common name that was used in exile. And we see that in Daniel. Right. Daniel had another name. If you go to the beginning of the book of Daniel, uh, he's known as Belteshazzar. Right. And um, uh, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names. Those aren't their Hebrew names. We're given both sets. OK, so it's not a bad thing. It's not a sign that Esther somehow gave up her Hebrew faith or anything like that. Um, that's just her Persian name. That's normal at the time. And uh, here we have a description of who she was, or at least what we know at the outset. The only thing the text tells us about her was that she was lovely in form and features. Okay, in other words, she was gorgeous. Okay, and uh, and if you go back and look in some rabbinic writings, um, some rabbis speculate that she was one of the most beautiful Jewish women in all of the Old Testament, ranking right up there with uh, Sarah, you know, Abraham, Sarah, and and uh, Rachel. Okay, who was described as being beautiful. Okay, so if you had to make like a top five or whatever, she must have been at the top of the list. Okay, we have no way of knowing that, but. That's what it describes for us. Okay, and we have to be careful here. I want to make a quick note about this, that some people, some commentators that I read during the week, look at that verse and immediately jump to the negative. They say, "Okay, what do we know about Esther? If the text says she's beautiful and and immediately a red flag goes up in their heads like this is a a, a terrible, terrible thing. Um, So here's what I mean. Some people I've I've literally read this this week as I was trying to study this text. Some people say, "Okay, what do we know about Esther? Just says she's beautiful. Well, the Bible warns us against that. Okay, Um, we know what the Bible says about beauty. And then they go uh, to uh, passages such as Proverbs 3130. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Um, and say it must mean that she was not a person of character. Okay, 
don't go there. Um, I don't think we should we should think that of her at all. Okay, I don't think that because it's describing her as a beautiful person that therefore it means she wasn't these other things. Uh, the, the text is telling us that for a reason. It's going to factor into the plot, but but it doesn't mean that that beauty is a bad thing. Okay, I think sometimes we can come away with the impression that uh, the Bible says, you know, beware of beauty, beware of beauty, that somehow God is against beautiful people. Like, uh, like sometimes we get the impression from reading so many parables about, you know, uh, a rich man or riches that we get the impression that riches are a bad thing. Okay, that, that God somehow hates rich people and beautiful people and he only loves ugly and poor people. Okay, that I don't want you to get that impression. That's not the case. Okay. Um, certainly I'm neither. Okay. I'm neither rich nor beautiful. Okay. My, my wife thinks I'm hot stuff, but besides that, okay. Um, I hope she does. Um, so I'm not trying to, you know, make a point for any, my, my behalf or anything. I'm just saying the Bible's not against those things. There is, there is a danger if you trust in those things by themselves, right? If you trust in beauty or if you trust in riches, that can be a bad thing. But they are not bad things in and of themselves. So when we read that Esther was beautiful, don't immediately assume that she was a bad person or a person of shallow character. Okay. Um, remember that Joseph was handsome. He was a good looking guy. Okay. Among other things, he was also a person of character, but he was a good looking guy. Okay. Just like riches. Um, Job was a rich man at the end of his life. It's, so it's not that it's impossible to be rich or beautiful or something and still be in God's favor. Okay. That's okay. That was totally a rabbit trail there. Sorry about that. Okay. Let's get back on, on point. Um, Esther is described as beautiful, and the reason that beauty is mentioned, I think, is not to come down on her, but because it explains why she was taken away from her family. That's an important detail to the story, because it explains why when all these officials came through the towns and said, we're picking up all the, uh, the beautiful women, why she was chosen. Okay? She falls in that category. She was apparently beautiful enough for these people to say, you're coming with me, uh, get in the wagon. Um, if you've seen, uh, I'm so influenced by VeggieTales. If you've seen the VeggieTales, Esther, I, I love it. Okay, there's some things that I have to uneducate myself about it that, that it gets wrong. Like, for example, it says Haman is the guy who, who, who carried her off to, to Xerxes. That's not true. Haman's not even mentioned here yet, uh, but that's in the VeggieTales story, so i got to, like, deprogram myself. But, but I do think the story gets it right in that she was carried off. We don't see any um, will of her own wanting to go. She's not in it for her riches, for getting famous. She's just carried off, Okay. So what happened when Esther was taken? Well, she was placed in the king's harem under the supervision of Haggai, and uh, she was given these beauty treatments. Okay, Um, and it says she found favor over and over again. It says she found favor. That's what I want you to see. I I want you to see as further proof of her character. um, This these words of how she found favor in the eyes of Haggai, favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her, even favor in the eyes of the king, though we distrust his judgment. And, and I want you just to think back about Joseph in the same way. I can't but help compare the two of them, that both of them, no matter where they were taken against their will, they found favor. And I think you can trace it back to God, that God was the one working through them and the one who is ultimately bringing about all these events in their life. OK, so she found favor and she went through all of these different things. She went through all of the the perfuming and and the spices and all the stuff to get ready to go to meet the king. And uh, there's reasons for that. They had a way of, um, you know, sitting in a room with perfumes and that was a way for your skin to absorb it. And that's that's why it takes a year. Apparently, we don't do that today. Uh, But after all that was said and done, 
Um, it says in verse 13, excuse me, if you jump down to that verse, before she entered, she was allowed to take whatever she wanted with her. Okay, we don't know what these extra things were, whether they were a gift for the king or something for her to take um, and keep later on. Um, but it says that she won favor in one other way. She didn't take anything more than what was suggested. And, and we're beginning to piece some things together here about her character, that she wasn't somebody who um, demanded things. She was a very submissive person, even though she was there against her will. She submitted to whatever it was that was happening in her life. And she was a very uh, easygoing person, it seems, a very complacent person, somebody who didn't demand or wasn't arrogant in her um, actions. Okay. And then, of course, the climax of the story is where she actually does become queen. There are 400 women and she is selected. She goes to the king's chambers, says that he was pleased with her more than any other woman, and she is selected. And this is the beginning of God beginning to save his people. Now, as we've just explained that story, what are we to make of it? Okay. Um, because on one hand, I can't fully explain the significance of this to you without getting into the rest of the chapters, which we'll just have to save for another time. Because through this event, these series of seemingly chaotic events, this is how God is going to rescue his people. He's going to use Esther's high position as a way of having an ear with the king and or having a word in with the king. And uh, and that's going to be how Haman's plot is thwarted. So that all the Jewish people don't die. OK, so if you look at this event, this is pretty momentous. If you are uh, from the Jewish tribes, this is amazing that a relatively ordinary woman from no other means is made queen in a foreign land. That's incredible. OK, but what are we to do with some of these other aspects of the story? OK, how are we to answer an equally large question? as to how she got there and how she achieved this position of queen in the first place. For as we look down through this, this process that the king had these women go through, we can see that if, if Esther had to follow through in the same way that all these other young maidens had to, then we recognize that by necessity she would have had to spend a night with the king. And that raises all sorts of questions. Okay, Esther is supposed to be our hero of the story. How can we get the sense that she had to fall back on her morals and spend the night with somebody who was not a Jew uh, before she was ever married. Um, not to mention all the other things about she had to disregard her dietary laws that she was to follow. It says she ate the king's food, all that kind of stuff. But the biggest one is how, how are we to recognize, uh, how, how are we to reckon what she did in order to get to that place? And bigger question, um, how, how is God at work in that? How is it that God so ordained it that he would save his people through this kind of questionable scenario that Esther had to place herself in and had to go through in order to get there? Okay. What is, and we don't want to charge God with any wrongdoing, for sure. So we want to address this properly. Okay. Well, some considerations, I think, for us to think about. First, I think it's important for us to remember that she was not put into this situation by choice. We already said that. Okay, throughout chapter two, there are passive verbs. It's not saying that she sought this out, that she was taken, rather, that the king's officials came and took her, that she was taken into the chambers of the king, giving us the sense that this was really not something that she had a whole lot of control over. Okay, that doesn't excuse her from certain things. I'm not saying she's totally innocent in this regard, but it does give us at least a sense that this was not something that she was going after in and of herself. And that's just good to keep in mind. 
Okay. So what do we say? Was she guiltless here in the situation? If we were to infer, as I think we have every reason to, that she had to spend a night with the king um, and all those things that are implied. Uh, If she did, in fact, have to do those things, then no, I can't say that she was guiltless in this. Um, But I think that should bring us back to a larger point that we shouldn't view biblical heroes as somebody who's being perfect, either all or nothing. Either they did everything right or they did nothing right. Okay. So often these biblical heroes are heroes of the faith, but yet with a mixed bag, things that they had to do that maybe weren't the best things in God's will. Okay, and here we certainly see that when she was presented with the king's food, she could have said no. And for as much as we'd like to say that she's like Joseph, um, we are reminded of the fact that when Joseph was brought before Potiphar's wife and she said, will you sleep with me? He said no. One could argue that when Esther was put in this scenario, she could have said no as well. Both her and Joseph were in the presence of somebody more powerful than they. They were both slaves. They were both nobodies. And so to argue that Esther couldn't do anything might be stretching it a bit. Okay, so we can't say that she was totally innocent, that she chose the absolute best path. However, I think we'd be really doing injustice to the story if we stopped right there with her application. For even though she didn't do exactly what was right, I think we should note the absence of commentary on her mistakes. So if you just read the story of Esther and what happens, I would note that there is not a word of condemnation that comes down on her. Not to say that she's totally innocent, but that's just not the flavor that we get from the biblical author, from God. Okay, Um, what the, the story focuses on is the triumph and the fact that God is working in her life, that all these things are happening for a purpose. And as we read the entire book, we see something going on that God is behind. Okay, so um In the midst of all these things that she may or may not be doing correctly, we see that in broad strokes, the book of Esther doesn't portray her as a moral failure, but a hero. Even if you look at the last verses of the passage for tonight, you will see you'll look in vain for any sense of condemnation against her. And in fact, our passage ends with rejoicing and a party that was thrown specifically for her. Okay, that plus a general lack of, of critical moral commentary on Esther's actions tell me that God in this story is a merciful God, not to say that God brushes all of our sins under the rug, but that God is a merciful God and understands where we're coming from. I think God takes into account difficult situations we're placed in. And if I could draw a, uh, one final analogy here, I think, to this passage, I'd like you to think of two, really. One um, from uh, the, the book of Exodus, where the Hebrew midwives were forced to throw uh, we're, we're being told by the king, the pharaoh, to kill all the infant baby boys, uh, uh, the Hebrew boys. OK. And, and they didn't. OK. They said that they tried to. They, they, uh, they were going to, but they actually didn't. And, and also, secondly, I'd like you to think of Rahab, the story of Rahab, where she lied to protect the lives of the spies. OK. If you were to read those stories in conjunction with the story of Esther, I think you, they would all read very similar. In all three cases, we could be very specific and say these people didn't do exactly what was right. Okay, when Rahab lied about where the spies were, she didn't have to lie. She could have trusted God and not lied in that scenario and said they're right here. Okay, or with the Hebrew midwives, they could have said, no, we just refused to kill them. We let them go free. We didn't kill these infants like we were commanded to. And in Esther's case, she could have chosen not to sleep with the king. Okay. But what I find striking is in that in all three of these cases, um, 
we see very little commentary on the things that they did wrong. In fact, the verses that immediately follow each of these three scenarios are words of comfort and reward from God for their faith, for the midwives saving the Hebrew children and their act of trust in that way, and for Rahab trusting God. In fact, Rahab, is the, the next verses that comment on her are words that say that she joined the Israelite camp. And the words that we see follow Esther's story are that she was... Uh, praised, and there was a party for, thrown for her, and that later she would be the person who would save Israel. I'm not saying that God lets us go on all of our sins. What I'm saying is that we can be comforted as we study the story tonight, that if we ever find ourselves in a difficult scenario where we are being pressured or even threatened with our lives to do what is wrong, and it's very, very difficult and very blurry in the moment to know exactly what to do in that scenario, and even when we're being forced literally forced into a situation that we would not want to put ourselves in. God is merciful. God is merciful. And I think that's the ultimate lesson of our passage tonight, that even though Esther didn't do the exact right thing, God used it. That's not to say that that was the absolute best that God could have uh, arranged for Esther, just like it wasn't the absolute best for God to arrange for Rahab to lie. Okay, God doesn't contradict himself, but we can at least be Um, comforted knowing that if we've made a major moral failure in our lives, and especially if it was done under duress, like we see these different individuals, that God can still use us, that God's not done with us, that God can still do amazing things with us, as he did with Esther, as he enabled her to be the savior of her people in that particular instance. I mean, think about it. From our perspective, if, if we were to take Esther as somebody who just slept with the king for a night, that might, in our minds, disqualify her from being able to do anything important for God. We might say that's, that's a heinous thing for her to have committed. If we were to be the judges to who's going to be the hero from here on out, we would not choose Esther to be the hero. Okay? But God is not us. God still uses her. And it's comforting for us. It has real-life application for us tonight, knowing that as we look at Esther, as we look at all these other examples of Scripture, we can know that even if we get to a place where we do something that we later regret, where we are put under pressure and we don't choose the absolute best thing or the right thing, the best thing that God would have us choose, God's not done with us. God can still use us. God can still forgive us. And God can still work in that situation. And that is an incredibly comforting message. I don't want you to walk away from this message feeling like I'm just leaving Esther off the hook or saying that in all three of these examples I named, nobody did anything wrong. I'm not. But what I'd like you to focus on is God's mercy. God's mercy. God is a merciful God, and as we'll see in the chapters that come, he's going to do some amazing things with this woman who was very young, pulled out of her situation in a way that she never would have chosen for herself. And despite her failings, was able to go on and do some amazing things in God's name. Okay? May we be comforted with that thought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, as we look at this process um, that Esther had to go through, we, we could look at it with a critical eye and say, how could she do such a thing? How could she fall back on her morals? How could she do this, that, and the other thing? And, and Lord, we, it's easy for us to criticize because we weren't there. We've never been through a scenario like that, never probably will be, Lord. And yes, Lord, we don't mean to excuse all sin and and justify future actions in our own hearts as being okay and that you'll somehow brush them under the rug. Lord, we don't mean to say that. But we do recognize that you are a merciful God and that you use even our moral failings to be able to accomplish great things. God, in our times when we're the most broken, when we feel like we've fallen away from you the most, 
where we've strayed from your commands, where we've forgotten about you for a time and, and realize in an instant what we've done. May we not be overcome by despair. But God, may we remember an example such as Esther, where even in her times of not doing the exact best, you were able to do amazing things through her so that today we don't remember her as a failure. We remember her as a hero. And God, may we give you all the praise and glory and point people to your love and mercy as we are forgiven and shown mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.